If you have your copy of scripture, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 4 this morning, Romans 4, and we are picking up where we left off last week. We're going to start in verse 13, we're going to look down to verse 25, Romans 4, 13 to 25, and as usual, you're going to have it helpful to have, it'll be helpful for you to have your own copy of scripture open, reading along with me, and you'll find that on page 941 if you're using the church Bible. And before we read this portion of scripture, let's go to the Lord again in prayer and Let's ask him to bless the preaching and and hearing and receiving of it. Let's pray. Father, we come to you as children to their father, as as people that have no bread coming, bringing empty hands and asking you to supply all of the grace that is necessary for us to hear and receive your word and to believe on your son. We pray, our God, that you would increase our faith this morning. We pray that we would hear your voice as the voice of the Good Shepherd, Lord Jesus. We pray that we would see in a more deep and profound way what you've done for us. We pray that you would be to us the anchor for our souls. We thank you that you are the forerunner who has gone through the veil for us, who in whom all the promises of God are yes and amen. And so, Lord Jesus, we ask that what we do now would be a heavenly experience and that it would bear fruit into eternity. Please help us, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans 4, beginning in verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null, And the promise is void, for the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise might rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should be the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith or waver in unbelief when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, while he was working on his German translation of the Bible um, early in the 16th century, Martin Luther was oftentimes taken by the German princes who were for him, and he was hidden in different places throughout Germany so that he could continue working. Um, His life was always in jeopardy. Luther had um, the church hate him. Luther had 
political powers hate what he was doing. And on one occasion, one of the German princes took Luther up to a castle in Coburg, Germany, where he lived with the famous artist Albert Dürer, and he was in hiding there working on, um, working on his uh, translation of the Bible in German. And I had the privilege about 10 years ago of being in that castle. It's, it's about a mile up over the city. And in one of the rooms where Luther lived, it was his room where he stayed. Um, he had uh, Albert Dürer write on the wall, paint on the wall, a verse out of Psalm 118 that said, I will live and will not die. I will live and will not die. And Luther uh, admittedly said that Psalm 118 was one of his favorite psalms. In one of his expositions on that psalm, Luther wrote these words, The dying live, the suffering rejoice, the fallen rise, the disgraced are honored. It is, as Christ says, he who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Now, what's fascinating about this is that Luther did more in church history than than arguably anyone in church history after the apostles. Luther, um, his accomplishments were unbelievable for the time in which he lived, for the resources he had. And the question, the question we have to ask is, what was the secret to Martin Luther and his ministry? The secret was Luther clung to the promises of God and to the God of promise. Luther knew that God was true, God was faithful, that what God had said in the gospel was true, that that God would fulfill all his promises, and that's what drove Luther on. And I want to say this morning, that is what drives every true believer on. If you are pressing forward in your Christian life, if you are going forward, if you are marching triumphantly forward, it is only because you are trusting in the promises of God and the God of promise. And the portion of scripture before us is really the greatest expression of what that looks like and what that means. Paul has been dealing with the the unbelieving Jews who had rejected Jesus and in rejecting Jesus had rejected his righteousness and were seeking to establish their own righteousness by the law, by what they did, by human effort. And the Apostle Paul has, for now chapters, has been unpacking the intricacies and the mechanics of justification by faith alone. And it's important that he does that. Um, It's interesting to me that I will have discussions with friends and and other pastors and theologians who who really should know better. And and I will actually quote things out of Romans chapter 4, and they'll try to correct it, and I'll say, I'm quoting the Bible and these are, these are guys who went to good, solid reform seminaries. Um, the reason I'm telling you that is because we all need all of Paul's arguments, and we need to know them carefully, and we need to know them well. And here Paul's giving us this powerful argument about the, na- the nature of the promises of God and how the promises and our faith work together. It's faith in the God who has promised that he will fulfill the promises he's made. That it's not faith generally— that it's not promises without faith. It's faith latching on to the God who has promised, saying, you are faithful, you will fulfill what you have said. And we're going to see this morning three things. First, we're going to see the nature of God's promise. Secondly, we're going to see the scope of God's promise. And finally, we're going to consider the God of promise. Well, notice in verse 13, Paul has been dealing with the... the uh, intricacies of the the narrative about Abraham. Why is Abraham arguably next to Jesus? Um, 
is, is probably the most important figure for your faith in the Bible. If you are a Christian, Paul is going to say here that you are a son or a daughter of Abraham, that you have the same faith as Abraham. So Abraham arguably is the most important figure for you in understanding the nature of saving faith. And what Paul says here in verse 13, as he's been uh, dealing with that issue of when Abraham believed, last week we saw that Abraham believed and then he was circumcised. That was a big deal. Justification happened before he was made a Jew. So nothing about his Jewishness, nothing about the law that was given 400 years later in any way affected Abraham getting righteousness. And that's your biggest need. Your biggest need is how do I get righteousness before God? And, And we saw why that was so important the time frame. And then notice here in verse 13, as Paul starts to now deal more carefully with the nature of promise, he says the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Now, here's what Paul's saying. Paul is saying, God told Abraham, I'm going to give you the biggest blessing you could ever get. You are going to become the heir of everything. That's, that was the promise. The promise was not just this little land promise. It was not just this physical offspring that we call Israelites. It was, you are going to be the father of the nations, and you're going to inherit the world. Notice, notice verse 13, the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world. Heir of the world. Now, I don't know about you, but what I see every day is every person I know trying to get possession of the world. Every day. Everybody. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what job you work. It doesn't matter if you're in high school. It doesn't matter if... doesn't matter. Everybody is trying to get possession of the world. And you may be satisfied with less of the world than somebody else, but everybody is aiming by nature. They're aiming for that. God comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, I am going to give you the world. And it's going to be by promise, and you're going to get it by believing on the seed, the Messiah, who's going to come from you. So that in glory, you're going to inherit everything. You're going to get it all, and it's going to be by promise. And notice what Paul says, that this promise to Abraham and his offspring did not come through the law. God didn't say, Abraham, I'm going to give you the world if you do this and this and this and this. He didn't say, Abraham... Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you this. Now get to work. I want to read a quote to you. I I thought this was so helpful. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, If God had said to Abraham, I am going to make a great promise to you, but it is on condition that you keep the law, he might as well not have made the promise. That's a great quote. If God had said, I'm going to give you the world, Abraham, but it's conditioned on you being good enough, he might as well have not made the promise. So the promise is unconditional. God says, I'm going to do this. And what God requires is faith. God requires faith. He wanted Abraham to say, Lord, you are true. I believe. And that's exactly what Abraham did. Abraham left his father, left his family's house, went to a place he didn't know where he was going, lived in tents through his whole life, never had any possession of the land of Israel except for a little burial plot because he believed the promises of God. He believed the promises. He said, God has spoken, this is true. And the nature of God's promise is that if it's dependent at all on anything you do, it makes that promise null and void. 
Notice what Paul says. He says, if the adherents of the law, verse 14, are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise void. So what Paul's saying here is the Israelites he's interacting with, they were saying, we're Abraham's descendants. We're going to get everything because we're Jews. And Paul's like, no, you won't because everything's based on promise. Everything is received by faith and faith alone. And so if the promise is given to people because of something in them, then it's not a promise. It's void. It's null and void. Really important argument. Martin Luther, interestingly, um, reflecting on this verse, said, without the promise of God, faith is of no effect. And again, where there is no faith, there the promise fails. So the promise that God makes is the foundation And God's saying, I will do this. I am going to do this. In a sense, you could reduce this whole point down, the nature of the promise. Let me reduce it down for you. Gospel promises are God saying, here's what I'm going to do. And if we don't believe them, we're calling God a liar. And if we believe them, we get everything that he does. It's as simple as that. The promises are not, here's what you need to do. That's law. He gave law to show us our need for a savior. Notice, notice what he says in verse 15. The law brings wrath. The law doesn't give inheritance. You trying to keep the law will not get you anything. You trying to be a good person will get you wrath. That's what Paul's saying. Trying to be a good person, not trusting the God of promise, not trusting Jesus will get you wrath. The law brings wrath. And then Paul says, where there is no law, there's no transgression. So God gave the law to show people that they were sinful. That's the, one of the big reasons God gave the law at Sinai was to show people that they needed a savior. The law brings wrath where there is no law. There's no sin. The law was never meant to give the promise. It was never meant to give it. Remember, Paul is still unpacking that argument that if in any way we think getting to glory is based on our doing, our doing, then we have said it's what I do, not what God has promised. That's the big argument Paul's doing here. So notice, notice verse 13. The promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And notice verse 16. That's why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace. You know, everybody talks about grace. My unbelieving friends on social media talk about grace. They don't believe what grace is. They don't know what grace is. I'm convinced that most people don't, don't really understand what grace is. Grace is God giving you something you don't deserve. Grace is God putting into your account something you don't deserve. Inheriting the world, you don't deserve that. I don't deserve that. God says to Abraham, I am going to make your name great. I'm going to bless you. All the nations are going to be blessed in you. And you're going to inherit the world. Romans 4.13. And God says, that's my promise. And you need to respond by believing that what I'm saying is true. And so the nature of the promise is that it, is, it rests on grace and that it is uh, received by faith. Well, notice, secondly that the Apostle Paul tells us about the scope of the promise. It wasn't just to Abraham. Here's Where do you fit in? How does, this, how does this affect you in 2014? 
sitting in the city center in Richmond Hill, Georgia. How with my life, all the contours, all the ups, all the downs, all the happy times, all the sad times, all the situations that I have, how does this impact me? Notice, notice what he says in verse 13, the promise to Abraham and his offspring. If you're a Christian, that's you. It's not physical Jews. Paul just eliminated physical Jews because he said the promise is not to the physical adherence of the law. That's Old Covenant Israelites. But the promise to Abraham and to his offspring, his descendants, that's us, notice that he would be heir of the world, and, and by implication, we become heir of the world with him. You know, one of the best ways that Jesus could ever explain heaven to his disciples was that they would sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom. That's heaven. Abraham's bosom, that they would sit down with Abraham in the kingdom. You see, the promises God made directly to Abraham are given to all who have the faith of Abraham. That's Paul's big argument. So that he is our father. There is a a covenantal solidarity between Abraham and us by faith so that we become heirs of the world. This is, by the way, this is Paul's big point in 1 Corinthians. He says, don't you know that you're going to inherit all things? whether the world or life or death, all things are yours. I mean, Christ is the inheritance. You're going to even inherit the one who inherits all things, the son of Abraham. We get to be with him for glory. That's, that's part of the inheriting of all things, the God-man. We get to be with him for glory. And so the scope of the promise given to Abraham is to the nations who would believe. Notice, notice this, verse 16, that's why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham. What does that mean? That means that the heroin addict that you're tempted to despise, if they trust in Jesus, they will become heir of all things, and the dignified person that doesn't will get wrath. That's what that means. I don't know how else to say that. You may hate hearing that. If you do, I'm very sorry. The Bible very clearly teaches that no matter how wicked or rebellious somebody is, if they will repent and turn and trust in the promises of God and receive Christ by faith alone, they will sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you know who said this before me? Jesus said it. You know when Jesus said it? Jesus said to the Pharisees who were trying to work for the inheritance by what they did, he said to them, prostitutes, And thieving tax collectors enter the kingdom before you. Jesus said that. He said that prostitutes go and enter glory and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob before dignified religious people who are trusting in their own works. Um, I love the the little details in the gospel that dovetail into this. There is... um, there are several stories, two in particular. Uh, Zacchaeus, who everybody hates. Zacchaeus is a uh, uh, crooked tax collector who's been skimping, taking the people's money. And Jesus comes by, and Zacchaeus has heard from his other tax collecting friends, probably from Matthew, of whose gospel. I don't know if you knew that, but we have one of our gospels, Matthew, was written by a former thieving tax collector who repented and trusted in Jesus. And then he invited all his friends, and I like to think Zacchaeus was one of his friends. It says he had a big dinner after he was converted, Matthew also known by Levi, and, and Zacchaeus must have heard about this Savior who received 
crooked, criminal, thieving, extorting tax collectors like him. And so he wanted to see who Jesus was, and Jesus is passing by, and nobody will let him in. All the Jews who think that they deserve the, deserve the inheritance, they won't let Zacchaeus by. So he has to climb up in a tree to see who Jesus is. Because if he had said, hey, can I get by? They'd be like, what? You're not getting by. Go back there. And so he climbs up the tree to see who Jesus is, and Jesus comes to him and nobody else in the crowd and says, come down today. I'm coming to your house. Salvation has come to your house because you are a son of Abraham. Because you are a son of Abraham. Why did salvation come to Zacchaeus? Because, was it because Zacchaeus decided I'm going to give back fourfold? No, that was the fruit. Salvation came to Zacchaeus because God gave Zacchaeus faith in Jesus and he was a true son of Abraham. It's another account where a woman with a flow of blood who cannot get any better and Jesus heals her. She touches the hem of his garment and he says she also is a daughter of Abraham. He doesn't mean a physical Jew. He means she believed in him. That's the beauty of this, is that the promise is made to Abraham. And let me say this. I, I say this a lot to you, but, but please, if I could just press this into your minds. That means every promise in the Old Testament, in some way spiritually, is for you if you believe in Jesus. All the promises are built onto the Abrahamic promises. That means every promise in the Old Testament, even if it looks earthly and temporal, in some way has an eternal and spiritual realization for you and me, though we are not Jews, because we believe in Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham. So the scope of the promises are to everyone, to Abraham and to his offspring. If you believe in Jesus, those promises are for you. They're for you and for me. Now, Thirdly, and I think this takes up and dominates the rest of this section, we want to consider the God of promise. There is a danger, I think, that when we talk about um, the reward of eternal life or um, wanting the promises, there's a danger for us that we fixate on the gift that God offers and not on the God who is promised. And I think it's interesting when Paul starts to unpack this, he doesn't say Abraham claimed that promise and said, I'm going to be the father of many nations. He didn't do that. Notice what Paul says. Paul says in verse 17 that the promise that God said to Abraham, I will make you the father of many nations. Notice this. In the presence of the God in whom he believed. Notice it doesn't say the promise that he believed. In the presence of the God whom he believed. So at the foundation of Abraham's faith and our faith is that we believe in the God who has promised and has fulfilled those promises in Christ. We say to God, essentially, you are faithful, you are true. Believing is saying you are true. Unbelieving is saying, God, you are a liar. I don't believe you. I don't trust you. You're untrustworthy. I don't know why anyone would follow you. That's, the, that's essentially what unbelief says. And faith essentially says, Lord, you are true. Do as you have said. You are trustworthy. I know that you'll do this. Now, here's the remarkable thing. Here's the remarkable thing. Abraham did not have an easy life. Maybe easy for someone to, to say, if Abraham had had an easy life, you know, how do we really know that he, he was saying you are true and faithful? And so what does God do? God 
first of all, makes him wait. He makes him wait for the, the promise. All the promises are dependent on Abraham having a son. And Abraham has to wait, and he waits, and he waits. Promises are given to him when he's 70. He finally, he and Sarah finally have a son when he's 100. That's a long time, and he's an old man. It's a long time, he's an old man. Um, scientifically, it was impossible. Um, realistically, it's impossible. Um, and the way, and, and this is the amazing thing, the way God's promises work is that they often look impossible. They often look impossible. Um, I want to read you another quote by Luther. Luther said, It always appears as if the promises of God contradict one another, and indeed, judged by human wisdom, they are impossible. Um, I want us to think for a moment about what God does once he gives Abraham the son. All the promises, they're all dependent on Abraham having a son, and Abraham knows that. Genesis 15, Abraham says to God, what are you going to give me? God comes and he says, I'm going to be your reward. I'm going to be your shield and your exceeding great reward. I'm going to give you myself, Abraham. And Abraham essentially says, how is that going to be? Because I don't have a son. I don't have an heir. So Abraham understands that all the promises God's making are dependent on him having a physical child. Now, we know that that's Christ. We know ultimately it's not Isaac, it's Christ. That it's the greater Isaac. It's the greater son of promise. Jesus is the son of Abraham. He is the fulfillment. He's the Messiah. All the promises are yes and amen in him. Abraham looks forward. He knows that a Messiah has to come. He knows all the promises are built on a Christ who's going to come and who's going to redeem and who's going to establish these promises. He gets that. He gets more than you realize he would get. And when you read Genesis, you understand he gets way more than most people think. He doesn't get what we can get. That's why we should be more excited about this. Because we have the whole canon, we have all of it, but Abraham gets a whole lot. And he understands, at least at the foundation, if I don't have an offspring, if I don't have a son, these promises are not going to be fulfilled. And he's 100, and there's the first obstacle, right? Contradiction, God says, I'm going to do all this, you're going to have a child, somebody's going to come from your loins. He's 100, that's not happening, but he believes. And in believing, he and Sarah receive strength to conceive, Paul says. That's the first then Isaac's born, and now Isaac's 13, and, and God has said that all the promises are fulfilled in Isaac, and, and God has he's fulfilled that promise in part, right? He's, he's given him the son, the, the, the promises seem to be on their way, things are going ahead, and God says, kill him. Now, while our... While our president made the statement that um, we would call health and human services on Abraham, children's services on Abraham, the Bible says Abraham had a faith that enabled him to get wood and to get a knife and to go up to Mount Moriah with Isaac and to obey the seemingly contradictory command of God because what Abraham did was he counted God faithful. And he knew that God was faithful and true and that what God had promised was true. 
And the writer of Hebrews will actually tell us that Abraham reckoned in his mind, he thought, God has said, I'm going to bless the nations in you. You're going to have more descendants than the stars of the sky and multitude or the sand on the seashore. You're going to inherit the world. Everything, you're going to be blessed. The nations are going to be blessed in your seed and your offspring. And that means this is going to continue. And now God says, kill him, kill Isaac. And Abraham says, okay, I will obey God. I don't see how that can be reconciled. But I know that even if I go through with this and God allowed me to go through with this, God is able to raise him from the dead and fulfill his promises. That was, that was the reasoning of faith. Let me say this this morning. If you are a Christian, you have to get there. Because when you're confronted with difficult and trying situations, and I have seen professing believers walk away from the faith time and time and time again because they don't count him who promised faithful. And when the trials and the contradictions come, they walk away instead of concluding God is able to bring resurrection life where there is none. And he is able to complete to the end everything that he said. And that's what it means to be a Christian. Let me say that. Being a Christian is not trying to be a nice person. It's not being goobish like the Christian on The Simpsons, Flanders. It's not, it's not, it's not just trying to do really nice, kind things. That's not what, being a Christian means believing God. It means believing his promises. It means taking him at his word that he will redeem, that he will bring us to glory, that he will overcome all of his and our enemies, and that he has done that in the death of his son. And how do we know that? And here's the amazing thing. We have every reason to believe because none of us have been asked to offer up our son. But as Isaac is carrying the wood, he says to his dad, we have the wood, we have the fire, we have the knife, but where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says, my son, God will provide the lamb. And when we come to chapter 8 of Romans, the apostle Paul will say, if God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Abraham didn't have to follow through with giving up Isaac. God the Father gave his own son. If God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Notice also that trusting the God of promise means knowing that he is able it means knowing that he's able. Um, Abraham actually believed two things. Notice, notice in verse 17, the end of verse 17. Abraham believed in God as creator, and he believed in God as redeemer. He believed in God as creator and redeemer. Where? Where does it say that? Well, notice. It says that Abraham believed the God who gives life to the dead. That's resurrection. And calls into existence things that do not exist. Abraham was a creationist. He believed that God had spoken into existence everything in this world. And he believed that if God could speak the worlds into creation, God can raise the dead. And so Abraham believed in the God who is creator and resurrector. And Abraham's faith was built on those two things about God. And our faith is built on those two things about God. At the end of the day, our faith is built on the fact that we believe in a God who calls things that did not exist into existence, and we believe a God who raises the dead and gives life to things that don't have life. Notice also, verse 18, that he believed those things when, humanly speaking, he had no reason to believe those things. Look at verse 18. 
In hope, he believed against hope. That's one of the greatest phrases in the Bible. In hope, he believed against hope. You know, oftentimes you'll hear people say, well, I, I don't have enough evidence. I don't have, you know, I don't have, God hasn't given me enough evidence. Well, besides the fact that you're evidence that God exists because you breathe his air and you're his image bearer and you are proof, besides that fact, um, God doesn't have to give you every kind of infallible evidence for your faith. In fact, Abraham, the Bible says, against hope, in hope, believed. He had the promises of God. He didn't have any empirical evidence that a hundred-year-old man could have a kid or that he, he had never seen somebody rise from the dead, but he knew God could raise Isaac from the dead. And notice, this is so beautiful. Notice this. In verse 20, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promises of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. As we worship God and glorify God, this is why Lord's Day worship is so important, by the way. As we worship God and give him glory and honor for who he is, as we hear his promises, as we believe his promises, as his word comes to us and we embrace that and praise him, even when it's against hope and your life has difficulties and trials and challenges, your faith is strengthened and you go on and you grow in faith. And you grow and your faith grows and you trust him more and you're established more and you press on hoping and trusting in the God of promise. And and that is evidence that you are righteous. It's evidence that you've been justified. And then notice this. I want to close with this. The greatest, the greatest demonstration that Abraham didn't have and that you and I have. Notice the last verse here. Notice verse 24. It will be counted to us who believe in him who was raised from the dead, our Lord Jesus, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. You and I do not only have the verbal promises of God. We don't only have the verbal promises of God. We have the gospel. We know how God fulfilled those promises. Jesus was delivered up for our transgressions And he was raised for our justification. And so when we are weak in the faith, when we're stagnant, when we're complacent, when you're bored over this kind of stuff, we look at the cross. And the cross cures our hearts. Because the cross says, I should have been there. I should have had the wrath of the law. I should have had the condemnation of the law. And God has come in the person of his son and he has laid down his life and he has taken my transgressions and he has been raised from the dead victorious. He has come out of the tomb. Everything has been fulfilled. And when Jesus steps out of the tomb, there is a triumphant yell of victory and a triumphant proclaiming that righteousness for all who believe will be imputed to them. So that when we consider the resurrection of Jesus... When we consider the resurrection of Jesus, essentially, God is proclaiming his yes and amen on all of his promises. And you can be assured, if you're trusting him, that you have the righteousness of Christ imputed to you, just like Abraham. And we have more reason to believe than Abraham. We see more than Abraham saw. We've heard more than Abraham has heard. Let me say this this morning. I fear that these things become commonplace to us. And our hearts grow dull, and we're not excited about them. That's a major concern for me as a pastor, as a Christian. We need to realize that these are the most profound and eternally significant things that you could ever hear. Some people never hear these things. 
There are some people who will never hear what you're hearing. And, and a proper response is us saying, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, establish me in faith, help me give you glory in faith, make me to trust you even when I don't see how these promises are going to be fulfilled, how you're going to work everything out in my life, how you're going to undo all the stickiness, my rebellious child, my, uh, the loss of my loved one and the grief that I feel over that, how I'm going to work all that out as I press on and I trust you. I want to say this too. There was nothing in Romans 4 about what Abraham felt. I don't know if you noticed that. Nothing about what he felt. I fear there's a great danger for us in American evangelicalism to, to think my relationship with the Lord is about how I feel. Am I on fire inside? And, and there's a rightness to want to feel the felt presence of God. But Abraham, against hope, in hope, believed. That means when you don't feel the presence of God, when your circumstances don't look like everything's working out just wonderfully for you, against hope, in hope, you can still believe, you can trust the God of promise who has spoken and who is faithful. I hope that this will stir up in your mind a desire to go back and read the scriptures and, and meditate on the promises and say, these are for me and these have been fulfilled in Christ and, and that you would be seeking together with me that God would be increasing our faith, that we would learn from Abraham, and that when we leave this place, we can go out into the world confident that we are sons and daughters of Abraham, heirs of all things because of what Jesus has done for us. That's the gospel. Those are the promises of God. Let him who, let him who hears what the Spirit says, let him, let him who hears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would take these things and you would give us greater understanding and care. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would uh, remove from our hearts dullness and complacency and stagnancy. We pray that, Father, you would stir us up by way of reminder that you would take the example of Abraham and his response to your promises and how he hoped against hope, and that you would give us that same faith and that you would enable us, Lord, to... Um, to pick up and to follow you, not knowing where we're going against all odds when your promises seem to contradict each other. Father, we thank you that you have fulfilled everything in Jesus Christ for us, and we pray these things in his name. Amen.